Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we'll find out if there's more than one way to skin a newt, and see how protein expression changes throughout speciation in a diving beetle species complex. If you can't beat them, poison them. For the less ferocious animals out there, one way to avoid being eaten is to taste awful, or even better, to be toxic to your predators. One of the most potent chemical defences found in the animal kingdom is called tetrodotoxin, or TTX, and it's very popular, being found across a multitude of different animal phyla. But when a prey evolves a cunning defence like this, it's always possible that the predators will evolve a counter-attack in a classic evolutionary arms race scenario. This is the case with several TTX-protected newts and their snake predators in North America who've independently evolved resistance to the toxin as an example of evolutionary convergence. We know a lot about TTX and about the mechanism that several snakes achieve resistance. Dr Chris Feldman at the University of Nevada, Reno, has discovered another example of a poisonous newt, this time the eastern newt, and its resistant snake nemesis, the eastern hognose snake. In order to get at some fundamental questions about evolutionary convergence, he and his team wanted to see if this new snake had the same genetic mechanism at the heart of its resistance. Here's Chris. So the system that we work on, and I should give a lot of credit, most of the credit to Butch Brody, who is at University, uh, Utah State University, and his son, who we call Little Butch. <laughs> Years ago, they started looking at the levels of poison in these newts along the west coast of the United States called Pacific newts. There's four different species. And then they started looking at the snakes that appear to be resistant to this poison and able to eat them. And these are garter snakes along the west coast. And what they were able to show is that there are populations where the newts aren't very toxic and the snakes are then not very resistant to the newts. But then there are populations where the newts are extremely toxic and the snakes have evolved extreme resistance. So this is this arms race coevolution that we see in nature. And this phenomenon of, of prey defending themselves with tetrodoxin poison and, and their predators developing tetrodoxin resistance is, is quite widespread, isn't it, amongst many different systems? Actually, tetrodotoxin production is very widespread in marine environments. So it's in blue ring octopus, it's in puffer fish, it's in all kinds of snails and slugs and various things. It turns out that we have very little information on the potential predators of those animals. They may be extremely well defended, but in terrestrial ecosystems, tetrodotoxin or TTX is found in a host of amphibians. And their predators, or various kinds of snakes, appear to have independently evolved resistance to TTX. So yeah, TTX is very widespread, but there only seem to be some predators, i.e. snakes, that are able to eat 
animals with TTX. That's what we've sort of discovered here now along the east coast of the United States, that there's a separate species of newt and a completely different kind of a snake, and they appear to now have entered this kind of an arms race as well. And how does this toxin work then to immobilize the, the predators? Right. So we actually know a great deal about how TTX works. Um, it has a very specific mode of action. So what it does is it binds to the outer pore of what are called voltage-gated sodium channels. So these are these proteins that span the cell membrane and conduct sodium from one side of a cell to the other side of the cell, which then allows your muscles and nerves to work because it triggers um, what are called action potentials. And so by blocking those sodium channels, your muscles and your nerves are frozen by TTX. Okay, and so a number of snakes that that prey on these toxic amphibians, they've converged at the level of the phenotype in terms of their resistance, but it goes further than that, doesn't it, in that the genetic mechanism underlying the resistance is also convergent in some cases. Yeah, that was a really big surprise, was the level of convergence at the molecular levels was very striking. We have the same amino acid replacements in this outer pore where TTX is binding in different species of snake. So oftentimes the same position in that outer pore would be changed, but there are several times where we looked at different snakes and they would have the same exact amino acid substitution, right? So in other words, it seemed that there was only one or two ways that you could fiddle with this protein and make it resist tetrodotoxin. Those examples there of this sort of constrained molecular evolution that that goes towards the resistance, that sort of speaks to some fundamental questions that we still have about convergent evolution, doesn't it? That's right. It really does. We want to know in evolutionary biology, is convergence due to the same underlying mechanism? Or are there many possible genetic routes to getting that same phenotype? So so here you turn to an undescribed predator-prey relationship to test what you call in the paper the repeatability of this phenomenon. Yes, exactly. We expected that we would see the same kinds of amino acid replacements in this hognose snake, this new system, that we saw in all the other snakes, including relatives of the hognose snakes, different snakes that live in the Central Americas. And this hognose snake that you use in this, um, in this research is what you might call very resistant to, to this newt, the eastern newt. Yes, we were very surprised at the levels of resistance. The way we test for resistance is we can buy tetrodotoxin, it's commercially available, and we get a snake to run on, well, not run, it slithers, on a racetrack, and we clock its baseline crawl speed. Then we let it rest for a day, and we inject it with a dose of TTX. And we keep doing this, increasing the doses of TTX, until we find that dose of TTX that reduces that snake to 50% of its original sprint speed. And that's the dose Um, that we use to quantify resistance in that snake. These snakes were given proportionately the amount of tetrodotoxin that would kill 250 mice or 250 humans if we were to scale up to humans, and yet they could slither just fine. So they're incredibly resistant animals. Where did you actually perform your your experiments? Was this in the field or did you bring these uh, subjects back to the lab? Yeah, so everything was done in the lab. Once you grab a snake, bring it back into the lab, keep it under sort of the same condition so that everybody's being reared the same way. And then we have a racetrack, um, which is basically a four-meter racetrack with little, you know, astroturf and infrared sensors so that we can get these interval times when we have it sprint down the racetrack. Um, And that's where we do our assays so that everything is as controlled as possible. Now, this can be off the record if you want, but did you bet on the snakes? 
This was in Utah. No betting was allowed. <laughs> if it was in Reno, we could have bet on the snakes, yes. And the second part of your experiment then, once you'd proved sort of physiologically that these snakes were resistant to TTX, was to um, assess the underlying genetics behind the resistance. How did the eastern hognose snake compare to the, the myriad other examples of this phenomenon? It confused us. <laughs> That's how it compared. We saw no genetic changes in the same proteins that every other TTX-resistant animal seems to have changes in. So puffer fish, um, octopus, newts themselves, um, other snakes, they all have these changes in these voltage-gated sodium channels. And these hognose snakes, they have us scratching our heads. We don't know what they're doing because we see no changes in this same gene. I guess this is what gave rise to the, the fun title of your paper. Exactly. We, we think there's got to be more than one way to skin a newt. And we don't know what the mechanism is. Um, and we're sort of trying to figure out what else these snakes could be doing. What what mechanism have they deployed? Um, and we don't really know. Yeah, I mean, so so the mechanism employed by, you know, the other examples in, in nature that we've seen uh, sort of makes a lot of sense. And you can imagine why that might, you know, people might think that, that evolution was constrained and that was the only way to do it. But you had some other fun hypotheses about what might be going on. Yes, yeah, so there's several what we think are potential genetic routes. So we know that in uh, vertebrates, some of these voltage-gated sodium channels um, have an innate resistance to tetrodotoxin because they already have a change um, in the outer pore. So, for example, cardiac sodium channels um, in your heart, they are very resistant to tetrodotoxin. So if you and I were to swallow a newt, which I wouldn't recommend, um, your diaphragm would freeze, your muscles would freeze, your skeletal muscle, you'd be um, in deep trouble. But your heart would actually function just fine. It would keep pumping blood. So one idea is, well, perhaps these guys are overexpressing cardiac sodium channels in their muscles or different tissues. So that's a possibility. Or perhaps they're upregulating the expression of these particular sodium channels such that they can produce more proteins than can be blocked by tetrodotoxin. We think that's pretty unlikely. And then one that we touch on, which we think is kind of a fun possibility, is that we know that venomous snakes produce their own proteins that bind to their own venom so that they, they have self-immunity. And what if these proteins help bind to tetrodotoxin, or they've been modified in some way so that they bind to tetrodotoxin in the bloodstream. And that's a really fun one because it actually makes a lot of intuitive sense that there's already this biochemical mechanism in place for dealing with toxins, and perhaps that mechanism has just been slightly tweaked to deal with a smaller um, molecule of tetrodotoxin. So given that there is more than one way to skin a newt, as you, as you put it, what does this tell us then about those fundamental questions that we touched on earlier in the interview about the, the, the evolutionary causes of convergence? Right. You know, so a lot of what we talk about in evolutionary biology, we go back to the genes. You know, what are the underlying genetic mechanisms? And people talk about what we call the genetic architecture of a trait. And what they really mean is how many genes are involved in producing a trait, so if there are very few genes involved in producing a trait, then it would seem clear that there are really only a few ways of tweaking those genes to then produce the phenotype. Well, in this case, we're left scratching our heads because we thought that was the case, that there were only a handful of these sodium channel genes that could really provide you with tetrodotoxin resistance. And now we have apparently a completely separate mechanism for getting there. So, so this... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This would suggest there are different genetic routes um, to tetrodotoxin resistance. So convergence may happen in dissimilar ways, even when we think we have things figured out. Maybe nature is less predictable and repeatable than we would like to believe. That was Chris Feldman from the University of Nevada, Reno. Understanding why species exist in specific habitats is central to evolutionary biology. What allows closely related species to inhabit different geographical ranges with different environmental conditions? Studying phylogeny can shed light on the phenotypic changes associated with speciation, but the relationship between phenotype and the underlying changes in gene and protein expression remain poorly understood, especially in non-model species. One useful technique is to look at the total amount of protein expression associated with the response to different environmental conditions. Ignacio Ribera from the Institute of Evolutionary Biology in Barcelona and his team were working on a Western Mediterranean diving beetle species complex. They studied Iberian and Moroccan populations of closely related species to compare their physiological response to extreme temperatures. Here's Ignacio. They live in streams, so they live most of their life submerged in, say, the water, although they pupate uh, outside the water and they breathe atmospheric air, so they have to go to the surface. What do we know about the, the phylogeny of this complex? We know that they are very recently diverged. It's a Pleistocene group, and the origin seems to be in North Africa, probably Western North Africa, Morocco, this area. So there was a, a first colonization from North Africa to the Iberian Peninsula in the middle Pleistocene, and then these species also colonized the Balearic Islands and uh, other islands in the Western Mediterranean. And then within the Iberian Peninsula, there was a speciation event, and then they originated another of the species of the complex. And this was probably in late Pleistocene. But in essence, you were interested in more than the phylogeny of this species complex, but the changes to the underlying physiology associated with the different environments that they experienced during the speciation. The basic question is to try to understand why species are where they are. We don't know the answer for most of the species, and this seems to be a good system for studying these, these questions. We had already data from previous studies that the species with the wider geographical range had a wider thermal tolerance also, so it could stand uh, lower temperatures and higher temperatures, while the species that uh, had a narrow distribution couldn't stand this range of temperatures. So this was giving us a hint that there was something related with temperature tolerance as a factor uh, limiting the distribution of some of these species. 
Now, what I liked about this paper is that often, you know, if we were doing this study in something like Drosophila, you know, it would almost certainly be a genetic analysis. Tell me why you chose to study the protein expression uh, rather than the genes per se in this in this experiment. We didn't have uh, genomic tools for this species, so then we were looking for a, a method that could give us an overview of what was going on in a simple way and kind of a fast uh, way, which was an analysis of the general protein expression. So this has several advantages over uh, genomic uh, analysis, other than the just practical questions like price and uh, availability. It also gives you an idea of, of uh, overall expression and of accumulated uh, proteins. So you collected these samples from the wild and then you took them into the lab to, to do these thermal experiments on them. How did that work? Yeah, we, we go to the field, we collect the specimens in the field, then we keep them in the lab for a week, but mostly just to give them a uniform uh, food because when we do the protein extraction, we extract the whole beetle, so including what's happening in the intestinal tract. These are predatory beetles, so they, they feed on different species of animals. So if you just extract the proteins, when you get them fresh from the field, you can extract also the proteins of the prey. Then we split this, this sample in three. We keep them one as a control, and the other two we subject them to two thermal treatments. One of them was uh, 27 degrees. This is inside the water, so this is, it may not be a very high temperature for the air, but for the water it's, it's rather high. And the other was at 4 degrees, so this is more or less what we can infer that they are the, the extreme temperatures they experience in the field. And then after these 12 hours in these different thermal treatments, we just uh, kill the beetles and do the protein extraction of these beetles. And how do you assess different levels of protein expression? Is that an easy experimental technique? Well, we use an uh, electrophoretic method. We use uh, two-dimensional gels, which is a, a method that has been used for very long and is not particularly sophisticated, but gives you an overview of, of the protein expression and gives you also an idea of the amount of accumulated protein. Tell me then, how did the protein expressions change uh, between these four populations? Okay, we found that the, the first event in the history of the group, which is the colonization of the Iberian Peninsula, we can infer that it was a change to a climate that was having less maximum temperatures and less seasonality than in the original habitat, which was North Africa. In this change, which is comparing the populations of, of North Africa with all the populations in the Iberian Peninsula, we found changes mostly related to the response to high temperatures. And these were changes in proteins which are related to metabolism. So they were, we can infer that these mostly changes associated to the response to high temperatures. So these are changes associated with a change in the high temperatures and associated to metabolic uh, proteins. The next main event in the evolution of the group was the speciation which occurred within the Iberian Peninsula. And this is the speciation event that resulted in the two species that we analyzed, which one is the new species, which is Agavos bruneus, which is the species that is known to have tolerance to lower temperatures, and is also the one with the highest distribution. So we know that in the field it can support also lower temperatures than the other species, which lives only in Morocco and in, south, in the south of the Iberian Peninsula. And then what we found is that these two species respond differently to the treatment at, at lower temperatures. 
and this uh, affected mostly proteins which are related to stress. We found differences in chaperones which are known to be related to the to the folding of proteins and they are activated when, when species are under thermal stress and other kind of proteins which are related to stress. So we can assume that uh, differences between the two species are related to the response to low temperatures and we also know that in fact these species differ in their tolerance to low temperatures both according to physiological experiments in the lab but also according to the distribution so the, one of the species is found in places which have on average lower temperatures than the other it sounds like the results from these protein expression analyses really tightly match up with exactly what we know about the the two main speciation events in this species and also the climatic conditions that we know those speciation events would have entailed. Yeah, but the inferences are, are kind of general. So we know that the proteins associated with the changes to the response to low temperatures are stress proteins but we don't know what they are doing. We don't know exactly what uh, is the function of these proteins in, in the different species. And we don't know also the patterns of, of the chains of expression. So it's just so far it's only a very general result, which yeah, match what we know about the ecology of the species and we, we know about the history of the species. So it seems very promising, but we actually don't know much about uh, what are these proteins really doing. No? And so this was an analysis of the, le- the differing levels of expression of proteins. Were there any sort of novel proteins or proteins unique to any of the, the populations? We only analyzed a very limited number of proteins. So the comparison we do is mostly numerical. So we, we look at the level of expression and see which proteins are, have different levels of expression. And then we just select some of these proteins and try to identify them by sequencing them. But there are many of these uh, proteins which uh, we found differences which we don't know what they are. You might say that proteomic analysis is a sort of step backwards in terms of studies into phylogeny and speciation. Where do you see this approach having the most kind of value in the future? Well, now there are increasingly new tools for studying genomics and proteomics. And and this approach may be a bit basic uh, for species for which a lot of data is known. But it's a very good approach for, for novel systems for which there is nothing known. So it gives you a, a kind of, of overview of what is going on. So, I mean, we don't know many things about wild species in, in nature. So we, we don't know how species recognize each other. We don't know how species, why species choose an habitat and not other. Why don't, we don't know why species can live in one place and not in another place. So these are all questions that we can just do a lot of hypotheses about them. We can say, well, they recognize each other by chemical clues or or they can live in one place and not another because of, of climate. But we don't really know what is going on. And then to know this, you have to look at uh, not only the genome or not only the phenotype. You have to look at the interaction between genome and the environment. And this is mostly done via the protein expressions. That was Ignacio Ribera. And that's it for this month. Please do join us again next time for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, I go by Jeffrey London on Twitter or our email address is hereditypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 